The first crisis of the Wars of the Roses was far from over. In fact, it had scarcely begun. The fleeing Duke of York was welcomed in Ireland and his cousin, the Earl of Warwick, still held the vital base at Calais. York's success in Ireland has always puzzled me a little. Here was a man who appeared to lack charisma and found it very difficult to win support amongst his own peers. Yet he was apparently popular with the commons and with the Irish lords. My gut feeling is that the English commons loved the idea of York, a man who would promote the holy grail of good government, or at least he said he would. Most of them would never have seen him, let alone conversed with him. So for the commons, he was a sort of figurehead, in whose name a variety of grievances might be raised. We saw this right back in 1450, when York's name was used by some of the rebels during Jack Cade's rebellion. For the Irish, I think it was similar. If they backed York, they were supporting a sort of alternative English government, from whom concessions might later be gained. It seems to me that, as a general rule, the more people got to know the Duke of York, the less they warmed to him. In the meantime, his ally, Warwick, was back in Calais and in his element. Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, now in theory appointed by the King as the new captain of Calais, was tasked with capturing it, and, bless him, he tried very hard. But his attempts were hamstrung by the usual combination of inadequate resources, poor coordination and military incompetence. Calais was a hard nut to crack in any case. No surprise, really, since it was designed to be just that. And even when Andrew Trollope and some former members of the Calais garrison were employed, there was no success and the losses were heavy. As long as Warwick could pay his garrison, he was secure. But how did he do that? Well, by piracy and pillaging, mainly against the French. Such activities not only gave him resources that Somerset could only dream of, but also made him very popular in southern English coastal counties such as Kent, which had suffered much from French raids in the past. So highly esteemed was Warwick in those parts that he was kept fully informed of every step the Lancastrian government planned to take against him. One result of this was that in January 1460, when a significant expedition was assembled at Sandwich to be launched against Calais, Warwick sent a force of his own there and, aided by a few locals, captured the ships and took them away for his own use. I'm tempted to say that ships didn't grow on trees, but, but I suppose they did. Anyway, his actions brought the government, poorly organised, poorly resourced and poorly informed, to the verge of panic. In March 1460, Warwick felt secure enough to leave Calais for two months to confer with the Duke of York in Ireland. What were they planning, one wonders? Naturally, they intended to restore themselves to the government, but beyond that, how far did their ambitions stretch? We've already seen that despite York's success at St Albans in 1455, his situation quickly became untenable. 
Surely a repeat of that scenario would gain York and his allies nothing. Late in May 1460, Warwick returned to Calais, no doubt with Yorkist plans firmly in place. But there was an interesting episode on his way back. Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, had been replaced by Warwick as Admiral in 1457, but he was now presented with an opportunity to prove his worth against his opponent. Exeter, who you may recall had a trickle of royal blood running through his veins, was given command of a sizeable fleet, specifically assembled to catch Warwick in the English Channel. But Exeter was a rather weak reed, as was demonstrated by what happened next. Faced by a superior fleet, Warwick nevertheless opted to attack, and when he did, Exeter simply fled. I mention this only because it is one of many such episodes which, taken together, helped to create the living legend that was Warwick. A man of decisive and effective action, a man who cut through all the clutter to, as they say, get the job done. When Warwick returned to Calais, Somerset was still waiting for new resources to try again to dislodge him. One almost has to feel sorry for Somerset because his reinforcements were at Sandwich, again, poised to sail across to join him when, have a guess, yes, Warwick sent another force there to scatter them. But this time it was not just a raid as in January. This was to be stage one of Warwick's invasion. Sandwich was taken by Warwick's uncle, William Neville. Yes, another Neville, Lord Falkenberg. By the end of June, the Earls of Warwick and Salisbury, together with York's son, Edward Earl of March, were all in Kent with an army of close to 2,000 men. Within hours, they were at Canterbury, and their numbers swelled to tens of thousands as they marched on to London. But why was there so much support for them, and why so quickly? Well, the Yorkist earls relied on the tried and trusted weapon of propaganda, spread through the southeast before their landing. To us, the tired old promises of reforming a corrupt government might be wearing a bit thin, but at the time, examples of government corruption and incompetence were probably obvious enough. The City of London authorities tried to remain independent by striking an initial pose of resistance, only to submit to the inevitable on the 2nd of July 1460 and allow Warwick across London Bridge into the capital. The Lancastrian garrison under Thomas Lord Scales withdrew into the tower and waited for King Henry to come to their aid. Once the Yorkists were in London, the city had little option but to support them with money, cash and men. By doing so, London was being inexorably drawn into the Yorkist camp. Though Warwick spoke a lot about reconciliation and peace, he was gathering his resources for war, and he was not a man to hang about. So within days of his arrival, on the 5th of July, his army headed out of London again, leaving his father, the Earl of Salisbury, to hold the city. What was the king doing all this time? 
Well, contrary to popular rumour of the time, he was not fleeing. Instead, leaving the Queen and his son at Coventry, King Henry was heading south to London until he halted his advance at Northampton, probably hoping to gather more men from his northern supporters. As so often before, Henry's councillors were divided about what he should do. Now, if you're beginning to think that the nobility of this whole period were a rather spineless shower, I think that would be a bit harsh. The council sought to avoid wholesale slaughter, and some thought that hearing what the rebels had to say was still worth a go. Others, such as Humphrey Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, who, as you will recall, had got it badly wrong at St Albans, were not prepared to be duped again. By the 10th of July, the Earls of Warwick and March reached Northampton, where the Lancastrian defences were very strong, ringed with trenches and cannon. In the morning, a final attempt at peace was made, but to no avail, and so in the afternoon, the Yorkists attacked. Now let's pause for a moment to consider what the Yorkists were trying to achieve by fighting the king himself at Northampton. They gave orders to spare the king, so they weren't trying to kill him. But if they did not, then how would anything be different even if they won? The rest of the order gives us a hefty clue, because though the soldiers were also told to spare common men, they were ordered to kill the lords and knights. The aim was clearly some sort of regime change. The Lancastrian upper echelons were to be destroyed. All of that, of course, assumed that the Yorkists would win. But the odds were heavily stacked against them, because Northampton just seemed too strong. But, as I've mentioned before, there were many factors which contributed to triumph or disaster. But a common one was the weather. For several days and nights there had been heavy rain at Northampton, to such an extent that the roads were very difficult to use, but more importantly, the King's artillery, its powder damp, was rendered useless. Even despite that setback, the King might still have won at Northampton, but for the actions of one of his trusted lords, Lord Edmund Grey of Ruthyn not to be confused with a dozen others by the name of Grey. Lord Grey had made a secret deal with Warwick, to defect with his men at the moment of the Yorkist attack. Since his men were in the Lancastrian vanguard, defending a steep and entrenched position, it seems reasonable to assume that without their treachery, the king might have had a decent chance of defending the town successfully. As it was, the Lancastrian army was taken utterly by surprise and swiftly routed, probably in less than an hour. Several earls defended the king and died for their loyalty, including Buckingham, Shrewsbury and Lord Egremont, brother of the Percy Earl of Northumberland and always hostile to York and the Nevilles. Warwick now had possession of the king, an important piece in the game, because Warwick could now claim to be acting with royal sanction. Arriving back in London with Henry on the 16th of July, he continued to profess his loyalty. 
Nevertheless, in practice, he quickly took over the government and appointed Yorkist men to key positions of influence. A parliament was called, mainly because there were attainders to be reversed. But what then? Richard Duke of York was not yet in England, but presumably Warwick was following an agreed plan. Or was he? We'll probably never know what York had intended, but he was not there and Warwick was. The latter must have felt that his success had been achieved not simply by military muscle, but by careful diplomacy and skilful propaganda. He had gathered more supporters at the heart of government, even more nobles and bishops, men who believed his claims about loyalty and about good government. He was probably loath to destroy that embryonic coalition by any talk of replacing the king or disinheriting Prince Edward. Also, Warwick had other things on his mind. He was anxious to return to Calais to ensure that Somerset did not capitalise on his absence. In the event, Somerset was forced to make a deal with Warwick and escaped to France. The Lancastrians holding the tower under Lord Scales soon gave up too. So, even before York himself arrived, in September, the Yorkists were in the ascendant once more, and all was well. Uh, not exactly.